Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 13. In this week's episode, we covered a little bit more information on the timeline and more specifically Jennifer's window of opportunity uh, based on some information we got from a retired firefighter EMT from the Houston Fire Department. Uh, And then we also got into the second half of Detective Allen's testimony. And we've got a bunch of questions from you guys. I'm here with Zach and Mike. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. And so after a quick break, we're going to get right into your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, guys, we're going to jump right into these questions. Our first one comes from Andy. How do we know that the red paint is not blood? In the appeals documents, it is still communicated as being blood. What do you think? Uh, we don't know. and that, So that was something that was communicated to me, reading some comments throughout the report, and then by um, even the lawyer that, work on, that have worked on the case, that just like when Justin just first got into it, um, I, think, I think he was even one of the ones that said that you know, they, they thought it was blood, but it wasn't blood. Uh, and then you hear in other parts in the trial testimony, you know, this, you know, it was presumed blood, but it ended up not being blood. But then we get the full. So reading that testimony is the first time I've seen the full details because uh, there's no forensic reports in the police file. Of course, those weren't included. But uh, where we see Detective Allen say we actually don't know if it's blood. They literally just didn't test it, which is, again, par for the course for everything we're seeing in this case. Once they had a confession from like, like I don't see how anybody could look at this case. And and come to the conclusion that Detective Allen or the prosecutors didn't know that they had problems with this case. The whole this whole part just baffles me because there's so much. I never thought the paint thing made sense anyways. Right. Especially when they said that there was a like a mist of paint across the silverware drawer. Right. Like who the hell if it's overspray, which is what it would have to be to be a mist. Why would it be? Why would the silverware drawer be open? Why would it be all over the silverware? I've got a better question for you. Why is there a piece of plastic over the silverware drawer? Yeah, it's all. Was the drawer open or did, I mean, the whole theory is right that the, uh, that the drawer was open, the knife was taken out of the drawer. What, that the killer opened the drawer, meaning mm-hmm. it was previously closed. Uh-huh. So where did the plastic come from? 
I'm I'm interviewing Jim Clemente for this week's episode in a couple hours, and I'm anxious to hear what he has to say about the plastic because there's been there's just been a hundred times. No, that's exaggerating. There's been a bunch of times over the years that I've talked to him about cases and about things that I'm like this. Does, like I remember the Melgar case. I'm like, why is that pillow there? And he's like. Well, they were they were probably using it to conceal a gun or to try to like smother something. You know, there's I don't remember what he said, but it was like, oh, like he just has an uncanny knack to look at things that don't make sense and be able to make sense out of them. Because I can't figure out why that plastic's even there. And then I wondered, like, did the killers actually come in with that plastic? Like they were gonna, you know, put a bag over her head or something? Or who knows? Crystal says regarding the timeline, did Detective Allen or any other law enforcement get confirmation or even a written statement from Craig or Janet? The police never talked to Craig, so the only so Craig uh, was contacted by investigators later, uh, and and the only reason he remembered the conversation was just from, you know, you know he's a close family friend of the Jeffleys, and then she gets arrested, and, and and so they're talking about the fact that yeah she called me this day, so the, so that con- so they had the conversation very early on that he had talked to her that morning, but police never at least not in the police file that I see ever contacted him. He was interviewed by investigators over the years. He's been even, we saw him on Crime Watch Daily, and then he's even been more recently, I think, spoken to by investigators and has always maintained, yes, she called me. We had the two conversations. He's confirmed that. But the police, again, as I just said, you can't think that the police didn't know they had a problem. Because of everything that's left out, like them not getting these times, like they could have, if they really thought Jennifer did this, they could have, they could have got the pager logs, the phone logs, talked to Craig, talked to Jana, everybody, and and really figured out the window of opportunity. Included the EMS EMS report in the file. The list goes on and on and on of all the ways they could have narrowed the timeline. But I think that we proved this week that the the reason they didn't is because the prime the timeline presents a massive problem for their case. There's just, in my opinion, there's just no chance Jennifer had time to do this based on the timeline that we have. As far as Janet goes, police did interview Janet. Uh, they took an oral state. They went to her apartment. They took an oral statement from her. Uh, it's in the police report. She confirmed that the call happened. There's no times listed in that report, just like no other report. Uh, but so she, and then I think they said they were going to go take a written statement from her later, which again, just like many other people that weren't helpful to their case, they never did. Uh, but so Janet confirmed to police. Craig was never spoken to. He confirmed to investigators later that that call happened. So I, I wonder if they maliciously just disregarded the timeline or in my opinion, maybe they didn't even like think about the time. Once they got they, they got tunnel vision on Jennifer and they just never p- tried to put a timeline together. So I don't, maybe they didn't maliciously try to avoid the timeline, but once they kind of narrowed in on her and they got her to confess, they just kind of were like, well, we got it now. It's very possible. And I hate to be like conspiracy theory guy, right? But but I I don't think that that's what happened. And the reason I say that is because it like report doc, I used to, I used to teach report writing to cops and firefighters. The most critical part of report writing is times. That's how I knew that the you know the 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 time of death uh, marked on the EMS report was the way it is because documentation is all about times. It's very you don't get to fudge times. That's just not how it's done. And the fact that in and look at any case file, go through our website for our previous cases, and every interview is you you see at this time they always at least make an effort in every report to get some kind of time. The fact that in this case. Time is whitewashed out of the entire report. 
I mean, could that just be incompetence? Could it be tunnel vision? Sure, but to me, it's extremely unlikely. And the fact that the EMS report is not in there, the fact that they didn't have anybody from EMS testify at trial, the fact that the dispatch logs are left out of the case file and were never entered entered into evidence at trial, this is a concerted effort for there not to be times in this case. To answer your question, yeah, it's possible they just had tunnel vision so they didn't try to narrow down a time, but that's not what I see here. Because you know what? Police didn't have to make an effort to look at the dispatch log. They can go to the they, can get, they have full access to the dispatch log. They can, they know exactly when that 911 call was made. They also had the EMS report because it was given to the to the ME. So they did know exactly what time EMS was called and exactly what time EMS got to the scene and they exclude that from the case file. There's too many examples like that for me to believe that it was a mistake, that there's no times. Lynn's got a few questions. First, she says, when the court recorded a juror saying Jesus during Detective Allen's testimony that he didn't collect the knife in the sink, was that grounds for a mistrial? Although the comment favored Jennifer, her confession was in evidence, so I expected Coyne to have taken some type of action in court. All right, so first of all, what for those of you that haven't read the documents, what Lynn is referring to, I didn't discuss in the episode, but it is contained. Actually, I didn't even notice it. Um, there's good catch on her part in the, in the trial testimony, in the transcripts, when coin is going back and forth with Alan asking why he didn't test the evidence, there's an exchange where he says, and so you thought there was blood, I'm paraphrasing. So you thought there was blood on there by your, by what you're telling me, you thought that was blood on that silverware from the murder and you didn't collect it into evidence. And Alan goes, no, I didn't. And there's a little blurb in there that says, a juror says, Jesus. So, I mean, you could, you could just imagine like how exasperated a juror has to be from the box to vocalize enough that the court reporter heard the juror, like are, essentially saying, are you fucking kidding me? Like you, you didn't do this. So would it be grounds for a mistrial? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's a rule that says if the jury or if, the, if a juror says something, it's a mistrial. I don't know that. But I don't. I think the state thought their case was locked up with the um, with the confession, so they certainly wouldn't be asking for a mistrial. And as you said, the defense, like if I was the defense attorney, I would be thinking, okay, this is good. I know I've got at least one juror that thinks this is bullshit. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next, she says, do you have an explanation why Jennifer's written confession was admitted into evidence? 
Was it a judge tough on crime or an insufficient argument from her attorney? I think that her attorney made a good argument. I, I can't tell you why the judge made uh, made that decision. My understanding I, now, I haven't been fully through the appeals documents because, as I said before, that you know that stuff that's out there. Same reason I hadn't read Detective Allen's testimony yet is it's just not my process. My process is to start from the beginning and work up to that stuff. But I believe from what I've read that it a higher court in an appeal did throw out the confession and still upheld the convic- the conviction. Now, I could I I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. It's 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 worth a bing uh, to find out whether that that's what actually happened. But as far as how we like, I don't see how he allowed it in. I mean, there was a very clear violation. But then again, from what Allison Clayton told us, there's no teeth to that law. It says that you that even if a cop doesn't make the proper parental notification, that that can't be used as a grounds to uh, not admit the evidence. But I think there was enough other reasons to not allow it in. I mean, so I I don't know. I mean, this was the tough on crime era. You know, that's. In episode one, when I kind of played, you know, Bill Clinton and and Bob Dole going back and forth in their campaign ads, like that was the climate of America right then. So you have Bill Clinton, who was a Democrat, still trying to convince people that he's he's you know not a tax and spend liberal, that he's he's tough on crime and the war on drugs and so on and so forth. So that you know that could have been it, but I I, I don't know. The judge is not supposed to work for the prosecution, but I've always felt like in most cases. The judges are team prosecutors. The prosecutors and judges work in the same building. You know what I mean? They they see each other all the all the time. It's it's hard for me to think like in this case that the judge didn't try to you know didn't let it in because maybe he knew that 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 was the only evidence they had without it. I don't know. As I'm saying that, I'm I'm realizing how how conspiracy theory I'm sound, sounding. So I guess I'll, I'll I'll retract that. I I don't know. I don't know why they let it in. So. In the episode, you, you kind of covered this, but I think Coyne did a really good job of attacking that, the, attacking the confession, the written confession, and how that Detective Allen took it, and, and the fact that right. he only let in, or, you know, he only wrote down the one that he believed to be true. He didn't write down any other story that she had had. There was nothing else presented about any other story, just the one that he believed to be true. Right. And I thought Coyne did a really good job of actually, like, attacking that in front of the jury. And, and kind of pulling it apart. It coin was firing from both cylinders against Allen. I'll say, and I, and I still I need to I need to get with Des Dunn, who's one of our listeners that pointed out the uh, the rule about not getting witness statements prior to trial. Because I'm curious if he should have had access to Detective Allen's uh, report before the trial. If not, then that then that's he was woefully under unprepared. If he if he was like he was. He was I, – I, I'm, I'm kind of shifting my opinion on Coin a little bit knowing some of this stuff because he was so handcuffed. Because you're right. He did do a really good job with the tools he had in front of him of trying to, trying to fight against how that confession was taken and trying to show the jury the absolute bias that Detective Allen had uh, in taking those in, – in, in the interview, in his investigation, and in taking that confession. But the problem is he didn't have the right information. You know, he didn't investigate the case enough to, like I said, I, I keep saying it over and over again, like a broken record, but the knife is the biggest deal here. Besides the timeline, the knife is the biggest problem. Like you cannot. And as we said, the, the, the prosecutor knew this. It damn well knew this. And you can tell by the way she words her questions throughout the trial. She knew that Catalina was not killed with a large butcher knife. And she also knew 
that if that came out in trial, it was going to be a big problem. The problem is Coyne didn't know that. Coyne didn't know that the medical evidence indicated that it wasn't a large butcher knife, that it was, in fact, a much smaller knife that was used, used for the murder. And so, like, and that's what I mean. He didn't, some of it because he just was handcuffed in general, and some of it was from not being prepared enough for the trial um, by not fully investigating the case. But he didn't have the tools to do what needed to be done. What, what needed to be done with us, you know, 25 years later, in hindsight, looking at this, is what the defense attorney needed to do in front of the jury is to point out all of the discrepancies. Points that were in general, you know, because what the jury heard is Detective Allen saying, well, you know, and he even missed the one where he's like, well, she knew that, what did he say, uh, the, the wallet was one of them. She knew that the keys were missing and she knew that the wallet was missing or that those credit cards were missing. And the only other person that knew that was me. Well, that, you know, that sounds like he's presenting an argument that Jennifer was presenting all this guilty knowledge in her confession. But the reality was. That she's not, yeah. The only person that knew it was you. And what I'm accusing you of is you being the one who who put that in her mind. Secondly, she never said a damn word about that wallet. It's one of the reasons why I think her confession is false. The wallet ends up in Eva's apartment. And somehow while she's confessing and going through all this stuff, she never mentions the fact that the wallet is gone. And that's because all Detective Allen knew for sure was that the credit cards and ID were missing. But he didn't know what those were in, whether they were in a clutch or in a wallet or if they were just loose in the purse and they got grabbed from the purse. So he couldn't insert that a wallet was taken because he didn't know a wallet was taken at that time. Uh, but but that was the, that to me is what really, the, with the, in order for the jury to acquit, that's what they needed to hear. They needed to hear that you elicited a confession. Take on the arguments like you were talking about, Zach, where you point out the bias that he had in 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 taking the statements, and then if you could follow that up with, well, in her confession where she's presenting guilty knowledge, she says very specifically that a large butcher knife was used, but that's not what was used, you know, and, and so on and so forth, and just march right down the line with everything that she got wrong throughout the entire confession. Do you think he was genuinely underprepared, or do you think he was just an overworked public defender? Because I feel like that happens a lot with public defenders. They have a huge caseload. Sometimes they can't properly put enough time aside to right. to go through these cases. Well, I don't think it needs to be either or. I think he could be unprepared and overworked. You know, the one could cause the other. In this case, I think we have a combination of as a public defender or a contract attorney that, you know, they have a massive workload and they have no resources. You know, so so if a rich person hires a defense attorney and they say, I need $10,000 to hire an investigator to investigate the case and you have it, you pay it, they do it. With a public defender, any anything that they're going to spend money on, they have to get approval from the court, and it's very limited. They have a they have a tight budget, and again, they're overworked. They're working so many cases, and the overwhelming majority of those cases end up getting pled out. I mean, like in the ninety percent or more, get pled out, and then I think you 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 combine. So I think he he definitely was overworked, under resourced, and then on top of that, I think that he thought she was guilty. And so I, I don't think that even the little bit of time or, or resources that he had that he could have put into providing a better defense, he probably was using that energy and resource in other cases because because of the confession that he thought she was guilty. If you read the, the entire transcript, you see that his entire defense was that the confession should be thrown out. Not that he never argues 
that the defense was a false confession. He never argues that. He only argues that it shouldn't be included. Nexlin says, during testimony, Detective Allen testifies that he became suspicious of Jennifer because of Eva stating that Jennifer told her to lie and that KD didn't put her on the steps when the voice was answering them. As an investigator, would this cause you to focus immediately on Jennifer as participating in this murder? 100% it would make Jennifer, you know, number one suspect right off the bat. But here's the problem with, with Detective Allen. He made up his mind at that point. And that's what you just cannot do as an investigator. You cannot put those blinders on. Yes, in your initial interviews, someone said, Jennifer told me to lie. And then, and actually, it's not true that Katie didn't put her on the steps. He, he, he was really, really confusing about in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out of the apartment and when Jennifer was approaching. But he does say she was there while Eva was still there. So, he does, so that, that part wasn't even true that Katie didn't put her at the steps. But so, yeah, that certainly caused you to look at Jennifer. But then, you know, when you talk to Jennifer and she starts telling you, yeah, well, actually, Eva told me to lie. That's when you have got to be dynamic in your investigation and consider all aspects. You know, that's okay. Well, maybe this is the guilty person sitting right in front of me and she's lying. But it's also possible that the other person was lying. But that's what Detective Allen never did. He accepted what Eva said as the truth, even though she changed her story three times or two, you know, initial story, a change and then another change. And the third time came at the grand jury later and then again at trial. So five different versions of the story she told. But he accepted hers as truth. And and then what we see is a suspect based investigation. So the problem here is, you know, there's always that shift. Your investigation should be evidence based until there is no more evidence to get. And you use that to narrow down your suspects, and then you switch to a suspect-based investigation. In this case, within 24 hours, it turned into, once Eva said that, for him, that was it. It's a suspect-based investigation. Jennifer's the suspect, and the risk you, you have when you do that, which is what happened here, in my opinion, is once you've already locked into a suspect, then what happens is you see investigators trying to manipulate the evidence to fit the suspect. It should be the evidence is driving it. Instead, the suspect was driving it. And so like, well, she did it. Oh, well, actually, the timeline shows she couldn't have done it. Well, let's just no. that's I know she did it. So let's not pay attention to the timeline. And well, actually, a bunch of these details she got wrong. Uh, she said in her confession are provably false. So maybe we should look at it now. But I know she did it. So let's just ignore that. Let's let's dance around the night. Let's dance around all these other issues. Uh, so, so that was the problem, I think, is, that, is they just they sh- yes, she should have been a suspect, but he still should have had an open mind. He still should have been in an ev- evidence driven investigation mode. Lynn's last question. After reading Detective Allen's testimony, it seems the red mist was on the walls by the front door and he believed all the kitchen spots were the blood of Catalina. So he collected very little. Is the plastic sheet still in evidence? If it is, would it hold any potential evidence usable for Jennifer's case today? I hope so. Uh, I don't know because it was not used at trial. So, you know, the, what I the evidence that I've seen is the evidence that was submitted as evidence at trial because it, that's at the clerk's office as exhibits. This the the plastic was not. Uh, it also wasn't submitted to a lab for DNA testing. It was only submitted to the latent fingerprint lab. I think it should still be in evidence somewhere. And if so, then yeah, my recommendation, of course, would be test it. Test it for DNA. I mean, and, and the fact that don't even get me started on the fact that 
he says there's not enough blood there. If there's enough blood to see with the naked eye, even in 1996, that's plenty of blood to get a DNA profile off of. I mean, I mean, we're not talking. I mean, we're, I mean obviously now we can have you know you, a, a single cell you can find to get DNA off of. But even if the extraction methods and the and the uh, amplification methods they had in '96, and some DNA expert may disagree with me, but I can see the blood spots on that plastic in the faraway pictures if they are in fact blood. So and then when you zoom in, you see they're they're sizable spots uh, spots of whatever that that fluid is on there. So for him to say like, oh well, we didn't test it because there wasn't enough. Give me a fucking break. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Kim has two questions. After learning about the crime scene investigator falsifying fingerprint records, are we sure that Jennifer's fingerprint was actually on the patio glass? Or did she possibly get caught in a, is there any reason I might find your fingerprint on the fence or sliding door situation where she felt she had to lie? It, it's hard to tell. I mean, I would assume that it is her fingerprint. The The issues that Schraub had in the fingerprint lab, I didn't see anywhere where he gave a false identification. And now it was a small sample. It was like 60 cases or whatever it was of his that were checked out in the audit. But But what he was doing was saying that he couldn't get a fingerprint that there was insufficient uh there there was insufficient for comparison when in fact he could get there was there was plenty of of fingerprint there for comparison and then also you know as we move down the egregious line then you move into the cases where he made an identification and just didn't report it where so like you look through his files or whatever and they determined that he did say, check this fingerprint, I check it, and it's yours, Zach. And, and then the when I when I turn it into the police, you know, to the investigators, I say that there was no match, that we didn't find a match. And then the most egregious that was found in his in his audit was when I found that fingerprint and I found out it did match you, Zach, and then I reported that you specifically were cleared and excluded as the contributor. So it, so his what what he was doing was excluding people and and not including people, which there's a subtle difference there. In my opinion, like in this case, I think it was to help the case. I think if they didn't want to find somebody else's fingerprints in there because they already had problems with the case. And so they just say, oh no, there was insufficient uh insufficient detail in order to get a to get a print. But I, I in the audit there's no instances of him finding a fingerprint that doesn't match you and saying that it was you. 
But there's also some weirdness, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom of it. If you look back in that episode in the, in the case documents under Schraub's testimony, it says that he was given that print for analysis like the day of the trial. There's something weird about it. It wasn't it wasn't identified like way before, unless I was mis. I didn't I didn't really talk too much about it because I don't understand what was happening. But during direct examination, it the way I read it, it comes out that that he wasn't given that print until like the day before or the day of trial, which that tends to be a little bit suspicious. Kim's second question, don't you feel like the investigators must have gotten the phone or pager logs, and when the times didn't coincide with the narrative of Jennifer being guilty, they just disregarded or destroyed them? I can't believe that no one thought to get the records, but I can believe they showed that there was no way Jennifer was involved. I have a hard time believing it, too. Again, that's, that's getting pretty, pretty down the road of conspiracy theory, but it's not out of the question either. Not that they, you know, got him and and destroyed him, but the reason I say that is because that's exactly what they did with the EMS report. They had the EMS report. We know they had the EMS report. We know that the ME had the EMS report. We know the ME took photos during her autopsy, and yet none of that is in their case file. So I I think that it's possible. I can't say, I, I, I don't know if they did or not. But you certainly can't rule out the fact that they did pull the pager records and then just left them out of the file, which if they did would be a, especially if it was an exculpator, would be a massive, massive Brady violation. I don't know how we find out if they did it because they also weren't super forthcoming with me with my open records request. This is one of the few cases I got where I don't have any detective's notes. Every other case that I've worked uh, in Texas specifically as part of my FOIA, either through the prosecutor's office or through the police department directly, I get the handwritten detective notes that are supposed to be a part of the file. I have none of that here, which is another red flag for me. You know, so we have we we have reports that say so and so said this, so and so said this. For example, the um, I said how all everybody describes Jennifer as wearing a black shirt and having two toned hair and a ponytail. You know, in one version or another, you know, it's not the exact same verbiage, but it's the same statement over and over again, which seems seems suspicious to me. But normally in every case that we work, then what I'll do is look at what did they write originally, because they type those reports sometimes months later. They they just hand write stuff and then later on they get on a computer and they type it out. And in and in many, many cases we see where what they typed out in their official report differs from what they wrote down originally because again they're they're trying to bend the evidence to fit their case but that's a but that's another gap in this case is the fact that I don't have any of those written notes and so that's where you know in a non sayed case or that eighth case things like that we find look right here uh detective allen you know, for example this is a, a hypothetical but you know, here's detective allen wrote in his notes his to do list for the, for today and as part of his to-do list was to contact AT&T and pull the phone records for Janet's apartment. But then we never see anything else from it. Well, not, now you've got something to work on. Now you can say, okay, well, he was planning on it. Do we believe that he never followed through or what's missing here? Uh, but there's just, we have so much unknown. Really, I think that this case could warrant an in-camera review, which means to go through and look at the files under the review of a, with a judge watching. 
to make sure that everything is there that's supposed to be there. Because also in my 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 DA file that I received in that open records request, I mean, there are dozens of pages that are fully redacted. I mean, the entire page is redacted black. I have no idea what it is. And I suspect that some of that is work product from the detectives. Jesse says, considering what Detective Allen's interview tactics did to Jennifer, how can we trust any statements he took? The second detective was sitting right next to him and watched Jennifer's false confession be elicited and illegally lied to Jennifer's mother. How can we trust any statement he took either? That's a good point. I mean, we, we, we don't know how, if, if Swainson was there the whole time, though, either. We know that he was there when the call was made, uh, when Jennifer's mom called, but we don't know how long he had been there before that. Um, certainly I don't think Swainson was the most honest guy either. Cause he's the one that, that took off with Jennifer while her grandma was getting the keys. He's the one that had that conversation. And according to Jennifer's mom told her that they're just wrapping things up and he'll have her home. He's the one that she was talking to when he wouldn't tell her where they were at because she didn't need to come and they were going to bring her home. Um, but also keep in mind. So that's why, again, back to ground zero, the original statements, a lot of them were not taken by Swainson or detective Allen. Uh, they were taken by officers Picard and Peekert, who were you know, canvassing the area at the beginning, and, and then uh, and then you have like like Eva's statement, Jennifer's first statement. Those were taken by Detective Boyd, you know. So it's yeah, you can't you, you can't necessarily accept it, but it's it's I don't know how far how far to go with it. I mean, we have the big clue that I, I've mentioned in, in previous episodes that I look for is. Did someone give a statement to police supposedly in their police report but that that helped their case but then they didn't testify at trial. Like youngster didn't testify at trial. KD didn't testify at trial. While they're acting as though, you know, presenting to the jury as though these guys gave incriminating statements about Jennifer and that's how they knew she was lying. But like Eva did testify at trial. So, you know, maybe they, you know, maybe she was scared. There's a, a whole bunch of reasons you could say if she had been manipulated to giving those statements that she that she lied, but I don't think they didn't have anything on her at the beginning. They didn't have anything to leverage her with when 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 she gave her very first statement to one of the officers on the scene and says that Jennifer told her to lie. Marinda says, could Jen's pager simply have the time wrong by say thirty minutes as opposed to a whole hour? Just time not set correctly. And where did the supposed person impersonating Catalina go? Wouldn't KD and Youngster have seen them leaving? As far as the time goes, yeah, I mean, you, you can come up with a million scenarios, but think about what we're doing here in doing that. It's like, okay, so here's the evidence that we have to work with. We have that she says the page was 845. We have nothing in the file to dispute the fact that the page was at 845. And then there was the, the well, maybe the time change caused that. That's a stretch, but it's a possibility. But then we find out no, because uh, Catalina was still alive at, at 8 o'clock. And there are a whole host of other reasons why we came up with why that couldn't have been the case. So then, so then, like, it's like, how far do we stretch? Like, well, maybe she just, for some reason, had her pager. And I'm not picking on you, Marinda, just in general, just is kind of this thought process. You, you know, well, well, maybe she had her pager for some reason set 30 minutes off. Like, that's exactly what I was talking about, what Detective Allen was doing, which is trying to bend the evidence to fit a theory. And that's not what we need to be doing. And as far as where the person that was impersonating Catalina went, I, that, that didn't happen. I mean, I, I'm convinced. I can't say that didn't happen as a fact, but but at this point, I am personally 99% convinced that there never was a person 
calling out, impersonating Catalina from inside. And part of the reason I think that is exactly what you point out here is the fact that there's no way if that was happening that somebody didn't see that person leave. Donna says, did Jennifer say she brushed her hair, teeth, etc. before heading to Janet's? I know she said she put on shorts. Since the minutes seem to matter, are we saying it took Jennifer more time to get ready than it really did? I'm just based going off of what her statement says. And she says that she, that she, when she saw this, because Craig paged, she ignored it. He paged again. She decided to get up and she says she went and, and I think she said she washed her face. She brushed her teeth, combed her hair, got dressed. She talked to the youngster for a second, talked to Eva for a second and left. And yeah, there, there's, that's why, that's why in this episode I put like a two minute variable in there for everything. But I think that about five minutes is, is pretty reasonable for someone to do that. Cause she didn't have a reason to be in a hurry. You know, I think, I think people could rush the rush out probably a little faster than that, but I don't think she, she didn't, she didn't say in her statement that she was rushing. And we, and again, we don't have anything to, there's no evidence to dispute that fact. Uh, youngster said that they did communicate before she left. Eva said she talked to her before she left and all of that fits when we're doing our statement analysis and you have, you, you have a, a segment of time that seems to be, there's no utility in changing it. And there wasn't because there's no, you know, the, the, the timing of this was never even brought up to her, much less at trial. But, and so we can, we can, are there, we look for, are there verifiable anchors here? The page to Craig's confirmed by Craig or page from Craig. Uh, she says that she, you know, she had a quick conversation with Youngster before she left. Youngster says the same thing happened. She says that on her way out, she told Eva that she got a page and she was going to use the phone. And Eva says that that she, on her way out, said she was going to use a phone and had a conversation. So when I'm doing a statement analysis, I'm looking, okay, that segment of time, there's no utility for changing it. She gave a series of events that involved the page, which is verified, getting up, brushing teeth, combing hair, getting dressed, which isn't verified, but is reasonable. She says she talked to Youngster. Youngster verifies that. She says she talked to Eva. Eva verifies that. So when I'm looking at it, I'm taking that section of the statement to be most likely true because it, so because for it to be a lie means so let, let's say she didn't she didn't brush her teeth or wash her face or comb her hair or whatever that is that, then she tells this story that's that's true except she adds in these little menial tasks that again is pretty probably expected that most people would do these things our last question comes from Michelle shouldn't we consider the fact that all of them Eva Jennifer Katie and youngster could be lying, not saying they're all guilty. And if you disregard all four of their statements, then the murder very easily could have happened between 8.05 after Juan's call and before Jennifer's page. Well, I, no, I don't think that could happen because of the, the medical evidence. I mean, if, if she was killed at 8.15, I think that she would have. There's no, there's no evidence indicating that she had been dead for an hour when, when EMS got there. Uh, she would have been by then. Her skin would have been blue. She would have been cold. Uh, there would have been no thought, you know, the, the nurse wouldn't have even done CPR. It would have been pretty obvious that she was long since gone after that, that amount of time. Um, but as far as, you know, what if they're all lying and none of them were involved, that's possible. It's one of the, it's one of the, uh, possibilities that I've thrown out there, but I don't think that's the case. And again, it comes back to utility of lies, right? If everybody's lying, can you explain why Jennifer would lie? about hearing the voice. Well, her explanation she gives for that is that Eva told her to lie. 
Now, is that is that reason? Now, do we know that's true? No, but is it reasonable? I think that it's reasonable that that a 15 year old would take what the 24 year old Eva, who she looks up to and is trying to be grown like her, trying to fit in with her, that she would go along with it. And then also we see we we, we see, again, in my opinion, it is a lie, like the screaming, like we see the same lie coming through with the other two teenagers that are in the apartment. Uh, so like you can see why. Jennifer would lie. You can see the utility there that she's asked to or told to by Eva, who very likely, in my opinion, told the other two to lie about it. So you could see where that came from. Now, let's look at Eva, though, on the other hand. When she is not a suspect at all, all she is is the Good Samaritan that went and got help. And then when she gives her statements, she lies about where KD was sleeping when young when when she was alerted to the screaming when her and youngster and KD went outside not to mention the whole screaming debacle which i don't think happened what's the utility in that lie why lie about any of that in the in my opinion when you lie to create an alibi for yourself like that and she's not saying someone told her to do that the the, the only utility for that is to create an alibi because you need an alibi because you were involved uh and so I, I would find it hard to believe that everybody lied in the way that they did lie and none of them were involved. That just, I just can't, I can see why the, why the three teenagers all tried to come up with some scenario where they heard this man screaming from inside. They can't get it right. Cause it's not true, but I could see why they would do that and could still be innocent. I can't see why the person, why the person, another person would tell them to lie about that and then lie about their alibi and then keep changing their story when you don't have pressure being put on them. That that's hard for me to believe that that person doesn't have some involvement in it whatsoever. And with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up uh, on Sunday. I'm, I'm pretty excited right now when we're recording this, I'm about three hours away from sitting down with Jim Clemente. He's had the case materials for about a week. And we're going to be working through a profile. So that episode, you never know with me and Jim. Sometimes we end up talking for hours, sometimes for 30 minutes. But uh, at least the first half of that will be this week if it runs long. Otherwise, the whole profile will hear uh, this week, just in two days here coming up on Sunday. And for your True Crime Binge listeners, for this week's episode, I had on Jillian Pensavalli from the True Crime Obsessed podcast. Really fun, interesting conversation. Uh, you might want to check that out. And also for you true crime binge people, I wanted to point out there's a lot of true crime binge discussion that happens on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. Just wanted to let you guys know that there is a true crime binge fan page where those discussions can happen. It'll help us not kind of clog up the feed and, and you'd be talking about people other, with other people that are listening to the show. Uh, that page is called True Crime Bingers. So if you look on Facebook under True Crime Bingers, you'll be able to find that. With that being said, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, and happy Mother's Day, everybody. Yes, in two days, happy Mother's Day. And thank all of you for tuning in, and uh, look for Jim Clemente Sunday, and we'll talk to you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. 
produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.